to Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. Tonight, we're here to look for the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is Matthew 16, 21 through 28. Do you want me to read that? Yes, please. I can do it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here into our reading. Great. Thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. Um, so there's a lot here, and I think it might be best to just go through this verse by verse. But before we do that, maybe just a little bit of context about where this verse sits compared to some other prominent things happening around it. The transfiguration is right after this, right? Yeah, and that's probably the biggest thing to keep in mind. The transfiguration is coming up in Matthew 17. So, And it, it starts off with, and six days later, um, Jesus took with him, etc. So that that's kind of the way you have to think about this, right before the transfiguration. Now, of course, there's lots of important aspects of the transfiguration, that Jesus appears, the Father's voice, Moses and Elijah, and, and I think it's Mark's gospel tells us that they were talking to him about his upcoming exodus. Mm. So Jesus is really now focusing and speaking about his upcoming exodus or death. Okay. okay. That's, that's a good segue to verse 21, actually. So the, the way that verse 21 reads, it almost makes it sound like Jesus is revealing that he's going to be killed to the disciples for the first time. He's at least making that a focus here. Yeah, there. You know, he alludes to it. You know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And and he was setting before them this idea, but but now it seems though there's a shift in Jesus' teaching methodology. Right. That he he kind of shifts from teaching the crowds in parables to focusing on teaching his disciples about what it means to be the Christ. Namely, he's going to suffer and die. Right. Okay. And then here you also get it centered on the elders, chief priests, and scribes, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body, his his religious leaders, the right. religious leaders, they're the ones who are going to do this. Right. So, you know, it I always as a as having been a pastor for so many years, I used to always cringe when Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees and scribes because he was re- re- basically rebuking the clergy. Right, right. And and I was clergy. So it always, I thought, okay, 
clergy need to be careful. We, mm-hmm. we pastors need to be very careful. Religious leaders uh, kill the Son of God. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, that's true. Why would you want to be a pastor if that's the if that's the the pedigree for your work? Is it, <laughs> You killed you. You led to the death of the Messiah, right? Yeah, wow. not something you want to be known for, exactly. No, 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 no. So this this does seem to establish some important context. Then, so when it says that Jesus began to show his disciples these things, maybe that gives us a little bit of context for Peter's actions that we're going to read about a few verses down. Um, so it, we're not saying this is like totally new information, then, but. So what we are saying is there's a shift in Jesus' focus uh, going from, okay, I'm the son of God, I'm the Messiah, and now to I'm going to die, right? That's kind of the shift that we're seeing here. Yeah, I mean, you had the parables that even address issues like, the, you know, about the, you know, well, the, you know, the worker, the um, unjust stewards and things like that. Mm-hmm. He was teaching everyone about the fact that he was going to die. Mm-hmm. But yeah. now it's now he's getting specific, right? Well, see, that's why I was wondering. Like, it, it seemed to me that the Jews, at least, should have had some knowledge of what was coming just based on the prophecy, right? Because we we can look at the Old Testament and we see all these Old Testament prophecies about how the Messiah needs to die, and we we can now see that very clearly being applied to Christ, right? Well, it happens early. I mean, even Genesis, you know, the seed of the woman and all that stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. And you, you get things like Psalm 22 and all through Isaiah and lots of places in, in the Old Testament where it talks about the, the suffering servant. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I know I know we have the benefit of hindsight. We, we see the whole picture in a way that no, no one in the biblical era did, right? But at the same time, it seems to me like there could have been enough there to where people could have started piecing these things together. Well, yeah, even oh, so even think about Saul, Paul, who was a Pharisee and very well educated and taught at the, you know, sat and learned at the feet of Gamaliel, a very famous teacher, that he didn't understand until his Damascus Road experience. He didn't right. understand that the Messiah had to suffer. That's true. And he was a he was a uh, you know, a Pharisee's Pharisee. He was a teacher and he he didn't get it. The the mindset of the people in Jesus' day, so many of them was that the Messiah was, and I just call we just all call this the white horse theory, mm-hmm. that the Messiah is going to come, he's going to get on a white horse, he's going to lead the armies of, of Israel, they're going to kick the Romans out of their country and all this stuff. And that's very appealing. We we don't know, we you and I personally don't know what it's like to live in occupied territory. Right. We don't know what it means to have people who speak a different language and have a different culture and different ethos telling us how to live. Right. Right. We wouldn't like it. We would look for deliverance from that. So the Jewish people obviously were looking for deliverance from that, and they wanted the Messiah to do that. So that's good to know. So in the minds of early first century Jews, a dying Messiah isn't something they had on their list. For Doesn't make part. sense. Doesn't make okay. sense. And, okay. And for people today, uh, the whole idea of Jesus' death is at some level abhorrent to them. Yeah. Why? How? And there's a pamphlet in the sanctuary entitled "How Odd of God to Kill His Son." Mm. Like the whole idea that, well, who who wants to follow a king that is a loser? Right. He lost his life. Yeah. So, yep. Okay. Doesn't fit. Doesn't fit with our idea of what a Messiah should be. Oh, it's true. And even yeah. now, if you think about it, we pray to God so frequently about material things. 
and so many we to the we exclude the, the more important spiritual things. Yep. yep. So that just goes to show that you know, and, and I do that. We all do that. We uh, we are focused on the here and now and the material, and we forget that His kingdom is really about spiritual things. Right. Yeah. Yep, it's true. Okay. All right, so we've said that this idea of a Messiah who comes to die would be repugnant to most Jews, and certainly it was repugnant to Peter uh, based on how he reacted here. And yeah. so, uh, and this is interesting. This is kind of an interesting theme with Peter that we see in verse 22 where he says, you know, far be it from you, Lord, you know, this shall never happen to you. He did something similar a week later during the transfiguration, right, where he tries to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Yeah, he says, why can't here. we just stay here? <laughs> right? This is cool. Do we have yeah. to go home? Mom? Do we have to leave the nice beach, mom and dad? I don't want to go home. <laughs> right. it, it's that why leave the, the beauty and glory of the moment to go back in, into the pit, into the right. minefields, into the salt mines? Why would you want to do that? It is interesting that though, verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Like, it's, no, no, no. Like, it's pretty harsh language, right? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we have to keep in mind that idea that she, that Peter's rebuking, rebuking Jesus. Uh, keep that in mind when we think about what Jesus' response to what Peter said was. Yeah, let's go ahead and look at that. Because okay. I, I think th- there are two verses that kind of stick out here, and this is the first one. This yeah. really harsh rebuke that Jesus gives to Peter, the get behind me, Satan. Lie. Yeah, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me if you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So, I don't know. Can if Jesus were to say say to you, "Get behind me, Satan," I, uh, I would I would I would feel terrible, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would talk think about so. talk about playing the devil's advocate, a phrase which we use to this day, right? Right. Where right. we're we're putting forth a, a thesis or an idea or a plan, and someone starts poking holes in it, and and then they say, "Oh, I'm not against you. I'm just playing the devil's advocate." Well, in this case, Peter was playing devil's advocate, but he really wanted to stop Jesus from going to the cross. Mm-hmm. So right. hence these harsh words from, from Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Now, we do not think that at this point, Peter was possessed by the devil. Da, 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 that's not the point. Okay, that's what I was going to mention, because I've, I've heard some people talk that way, as if like Peter was literally possessed by Satan himself. And he like kind of wasn't acting of his own free will or volition. Yeah, it was actually and, like Satan speaking through Peter. Yeah, you have, to, you have to remember when when um, the Bible tells us that uh, Satan entered Judas, and you don't get that here, and you don't get Peter repenting of it and Jesus absolving him and restoring him like Jesus does after Peter's denial. Right. But basically, he's got the wrong message. And and Jesus is telling that you you are speaking the message that is Satan's message. Now, oddly enough, the devil wanted to kill Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's, yeah. it's kind of weird because the devil wanted Jesus dead, but didn't realize, I guess, at some level, the or he was so people say he was so insane he knew that it was going to be bring about his own destruction, but he went ahead with it anyway, hmm. spurring the crowds on uh, to ask for Jesus to be crucified. But but the one thing Satan doesn't want is for God's people to be God's people, for the people of the world to be forgiven. Right. So here, here the devil's in this trap. I want to kill him, but does he understand what's going to come about if he does? Right. Yeah. At some level, it's like he didn't. He didn't, but we don't know that. We're speculating. Right. right. So even even though. Uh, 
Satan wasn't like possessing Peter to speak these words. There is a sense in which what Peter was saying was aligned with what the devil wanted in a way. <laughs> Because the devil can, wants to keep Jesus from the cross, right? From the cross. He, he yeah. wants to keep, he, the devil wants to keep Jesus from saving people. Right. That we know. Right. He, the devil was spurring the crowds on to crucify him, but the devil doesn't want Jesus to bring about the salvation of the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's safe to say that, that Peter's words made him basically playing the devil's advocate. Right. Right. Yeah. So he didn't want, so here's the weird thing. The devil... On the one hand, doesn't want Jesus to be crucified, but he does. Mm-hmm. He definitely doesn't want Jesus to save the world. Mm-hmm. And to save the world, Jesus has to go to the cross. So you are a hindrance to me. That's probably the operative idea here, that Peter, those words are, are trying to prevent Jesus from doing what he needs to do. Right. Now, how do you think we should like look at Peter here? Like When I, when I read this narrative and I read what Peter does during the transfiguration, like, it often seems like he is kind of operating, you know, with good intentions. Like, he loves Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to die, obviously. And uh, he doesn't want Jesus to have to go through that. And so there's kind of like this more sympathetic view of Peter where he's just kind of acting out of love, but ignorance oh, in a way. Yeah. And then, like, some people take this more kind of malicious view where Peter is, like, actively trying to prevent Jesus from doing what he came to do. That sort of idea. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I think it's. I think it's ignorance, a desire to protect Jesus, mm-hmm. but he's trying to protect him from that which Jesus came to do. Right. Okay. Right. And but and 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 again, you jump to transfiguration. Let's just stay here and hang out. Um, yeah. Well, why? You know, practically, why would you want to go back down to the salt mines? Why do you want to go to Jerusalem? Why do you yeah. want? To, why do you want to die? That's yeah. no good. Let's continue. Do we don't have to do this now, do we? I mean, right, about it, right, right. Let's let's put it off for a bit. So I I'm not too harsh on Peter. I think he's trying to protect Jesus. He's he's wrong in his in what he's saying, but th- I think the motivation here is good. He wants to protect Jesus, right? So how do we kind of square this harsh rebuke with like this seemingly kind of innocent <clears throat> statement that he makes, <clears throat> a well intentioned <throat> statement? Perhaps the statement isn't so innocent because. I, maybe that's how we should look at this is that it would be really, really bad if Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins. And so like, yeah. And so maybe this rebuke is more speaking to the seriousness of um, wanting to prevent that from happening than to, you know, malintent on, on Peter's side or something. Yeah. Like so many years ago, some 30 some years ago, I was working on something and my two and a half year old son came to, hand me a screwdriver and I didn't need the screwdriver, but he was going to help daddy. And he took the screwdriver and went to hand it to me and put it right by my face between my glasses and my eye. Okay. (laughs) I don't, I don't think my two and a half year old son really wanted to gouge my eye out, (laughs) but that was basically what he was almost about to do. Right. Okay. Let's just put it in that. Peter didn't understand exactly the ramifications of what he was trying to communicate to Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. And he wanted to protect Jesus and he loved Jesus and it was ignorance. And I don't think he was lacking in faith at this point. I think he was lacking more in um, his faith, feeding his understanding and his, his, co- his cognitive ability to grasp this big picture mm-hmm. was lacking. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and we also also have to look at this first verse from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, et cetera. 
Right. He's now giving them the details. So the response is no. Right. And this, I think it's a normal response. Right. Okay. And maybe there is a warning for us here too. Um, Cause I, I think people want the like happy side of Christianity oftentimes. Without, I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Without the Christ on the cross aspect, you know, that's, that part's kind of sad. That part's kind of depressing. And it is the way that interesting, the way that Jesus rebukes him here, that you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And maybe that's kind of where this comes in as well. Like the cross is such a necessary part of Christianity and it's Christ's chief work uh, yep. in his, in his ministry. Right. And so, um, of course, Peter was enjoying like the company he was getting with from from Jesus, and he he longed for that sort of, uh, you know, companionship and having Jesus physically present and visible oh, to him. Yeah, of course. But um, yeah, do you think that plays into Jesus' rebuke here? Yeah. It, so Jesus comes for that one mission to go to the cross, and this is saying, "Oh, don't do that." Well, that's why I came. Right. And, and you're basically saying what Satan would like you to say to try to prevent me from saving the world. Right. Yeah, that's right. it. That's it. And hence the harsh rebuke. And then you're, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Namely, you're not thinking about the spiritual impl- ramifications, implications of what you're saying. Yeah. You're thinking from an earthly human perspective. Oh, no, Jesus, just let's just keep going the way things are. Right. The status right. quo is the way to go, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right, good. Um, let's jump down to verse 27, because this is going to feed into our next big discussion point in verse 28. So verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, first and foremost, is this referring to the final judgment? It seems to be. Right? Verse 27 does seem, yeah, when he returns um, with his angels and all that stuff, you know, we believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Right. And the whole uh, repay to each person according to what he has done. Fortunately for us Christian people, everything we do in faith is a good work in the eyes of God if it's done in accordance with the Ten Commandments, if it's done for the benefit of our fellow man, to the glory of God, all those all those criteria we put around what a good work is. Everything that we do as a Christian person done in faith is seen as good work. So we're okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's important because I think this kind of language in scripture trips people up sometimes. It does. They'll point to this and say, isn't this works righteousness? Like yes. people are getting rewarded or punished based on what they do. It and is. That's kind of the, the way that people think of this. Um, it is. It is works righteousness. But as we understand what the Bible does is it takes Jesus works and applies them to our account. Right. You know, right. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right. That whole idea of repaying for someone what they've done, good or bad. Are you righteous or unrighteous? Right. And of course, Paul unpacks all that idea of righteousness and justification and through his epistles. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I, I've heard it said that like so so Christians, our sins have been forgiven, but we'll still be judged according to the the good works that we do. Yeah. But yeah. And that's okay because we have Jesus works. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Jesus works are credited to our account. Mm-hmm. And bear in mind my favorite verse, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the bad stuff's gone. Right. And all the good remains, the good we do in Jesus, the the good we have from Jesus, it's all it's all now good. Right. Right. But but spiritual is the idea here. 
uh, declaration of forgiveness and the application of Jesus' merit to our account. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, that makes good sense. So now let's spend the rest of our time tonight looking at verse 28, because this to me is the most confusing. Yeah, I have to go. Did I tell you I needed to leave early tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Right. So people read this, and to many it seems like Jesus is saying, some of you guys are going to see my second coming, right? Like that's what a lot of people think this means. And in some ways on the surface, that's what it looks like it means. But we know that obviously we're still waiting for Christ's uh, return even now. Yep. Right? And so what does this mean? So a couple different ways to look at it. One, you can take a very simple view, kind of a weird view and say um, that, yeah, you know, you guys are going to get to see my second coming or, mm-hmm. or some of you are going to see my return or whatever. Okay. Right. The son of man coming in his kingdom. But then I think the real question is, what does it mean? The son of man coming in his kingdom. Right. Now, we just talked about the transfiguration. That's uh, the accounts given to that us in Matthew 17. And, and there, um, it's fascinating. After, and after six days, that's what it says next after our text tonight. And after mm-hmm. six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, that sounds like a pretty good glory moment. True. And, and hence that, that elicited that response of, hey, let's just stay here uh, because this is, this is great. This is glory. This is fantastic. Right. So some people say that, that, that his words here are referring to that. But then the, some of you will not taste death until that moment seems a little odd. Um, well, so, so if you, it was the transfiguration, he would then be referring to Peter and... Um, James and John. Right. Exactly. Right. So, okay. So under that interpretation, if it was the transfiguration and like the, it, that was like a taste of the coming kingdom. So to right. Speak. And yeah. And, and well, and also the fact that they didn't taste death until they saw that kingdom, they saw it. Right. Right. Like those three saw it. Okay. So let's read the verse again. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it as being transfiguration, yes, they got to see that aspect of Jesus kingdom before they died. Mm-hmm. So some of them did get to see it. Okay, that's w- right. one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is um, the uh, idea that it's it's referring to Pentecost. Okay. So now I should back up a second. You know, Second Peter one sixteen and eight to eighteen say Peter says, "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Mm. So that, that phrasing there, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So P- Peter, it sounds as though Peter's referring to the transfiguration. Well, he is here. Right. But is that what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16? Right. Um, Matthew 17, 1 to 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James, etc. So that that idea of here is Jesus in power in his kingdom as he talks with Moses and Elijah. 
the voice from the Father comes from the cloud. Peter, James, and John get to witness this. That 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 may well be it. That is somewhat compelling, given that the transfiguration happens right after this, and like from a narrative standpoint, like we know all these like section breaks are artificial, right? They weren't part of the original text, right? And so, if but, you're reading this as like a whole block, right? And and you see these two things together, you might be more inclined to make that connection when well, there's not that, like chapter separation in there you know right I mean? especially when 17 verse 1 says and after six days right 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 it ties it ties it right together and next week kids we went to the mount of transfiguration right, <laughs> right. yeah okay. okay okay you mentioned uh, the second interpretation was pentecost pentecost yeah because there you know jesus uh, you know he promises the holy spirit he ascends to heaven and he sends his holy spirit the and you get these this prophesied in Joel chapter two. You get the stuff from Acts chapter two. Uh, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will prophesy, etc. And it's interesting that um, we regard the last days as having started with Pentecost, right? The original Pentecost, and and there is the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Is that the coming of the kingdom? Because you know the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus said, right? Right. And now the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. Right. So yeah. that's an aspect of the kingdom we can't ignore. It's true. And there is like a lot of tradition that kind of goes along with this idea that um, Christ's kingdom kind of came to earth in a big way on Pentecost, right? Yeah, like, we call it the birthday of the Christian church and things yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. And we, we have like the, the hymn um, in uh, the, the Messiah. Um, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God, oh God right? Yeah. And yeah, kind of similar, similar theme there that this kind of uh, this advent of the New Testament church is the beginning of Christ's kind of earthly reign, so to speak. Yeah, right. They will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Yeah, and here yeah. at Pentecost, you can see Him expanding His kingdom. Right. A couple more ideas, huh? Yes. Yeah, let's, what's confuse, the next one? let's confuse everybody. <laughs> so some people regard this as a precursor to the final judgment, namely the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Some of the disciples are still alive at this time. You know, John lived years after this. Um, and the destruction of Jerusalem in, in the year 70, they look at that as being a precursor to Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead. Yes. And when I first heard this, I was skeptical, but the more I thought about it, I grew to like this view more and more because it does make sense of verse 27, I think, because uh, we, we just said that verse 27 was talking about the final judgment. Right. And so it would kind of make sense if Jesus was still referring to the final judgment in a way in verse 28. Yeah. So verse 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and they will repay each person according to what he has done. And then verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. It almost right. seems like logically he's clarifying in verse 28, what he said in verse 27. Right. Right. And this is Lenski's view, right? That's Lenski's view. And that's, it's, it's another possibility. And, and maybe that's what, to what he's referring and as I mentioned to you a couple of nights ago, Will, it, since you know we don't, you and I don't speak Aramaic, Aramaic or Greek to one another, it's kind of hard to tell just what did what did he mean? 
is there a certain flavor or nuance or something that we're missing mm-hmm. being separated by 2000 years and, and the language barrier? Right. right. So we do our best. And, and so here are, here are three possibilities <clears throat> um, that it, the destruction of Jerusalem is what he's referring to. Right. I, I kind of got to say, like Linsky kind of leans into the intuition that verse 28 is talking about the final judgment. And, and yeah, the, like that interpretation kind of makes sense with what Linsky's saying here. And so, yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, interpretation of this. Right. So I was talking to my pastor a little bit before we got on this evening. And he said, yes, but there's a commentator named France, whom I'm not familiar with. And he said his idea is that it, this is linked to the Great Commission. Hmm. Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man going into the kingdom of the Father. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Let me just read a little bit from that. Verses 17 to 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, if a kingdom has one aspect to it, it's the aspect of authority. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what defines a kingdom, isn't it? Right. It's true. Your, your boundaries, your authority, how do you exert authority? How do you manage that kingdom? How do you deal with it as a king? Right. Right. No, those are all good points. And I, I see merits to all of them. I, I will say some of these happen so closely after the event uh, that we just read that it does seem to me kind of weird that he would say that some of you will not taste death in the, in so, until you see these things. Like yeah. if he's referring to something that happens a week later, it seems to me a little bit strange, but maybe he was trying to just single out um, Peter, James, and John. Yeah. And, and the whole idea of, Hey, some of you guys are going to get to see me coming in my kingdom. Right. Which is basically the same thing as saying some of you are going to not taste death until you see me. And yeah. that's why I was talking about the 2,000-year separation and the, and the language change, that we don't get the nuance and subtlety of all the Aramaic and Greek phrasing, mm-hmm. that he may have simply been saying, hey, some of you are going to get to see this. Right. That's true. Which Peter, yep. James, and John did. Now, Judas is dead by the time you get to the Great Commission. True. So he didn't see that coming authority. And probably somewhere in the midst of these four ideas is something that we're just missing. <laughs> <laughs> But also, I think each aspect of it allows us to think about what Jesus said and strengthens our faith by our considering these these possibilities, whether it's the Transfiguration, Pentecost, the destruction of Jerusalem, or the giving of the Great Commission. Those are all good for us to think about. Yeah, and it's it's important because they're all an aspect of His coming kingdom, right? They are. So, like this this whole question is wrapped up in what does it mean to see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom? Is that judgment? Is that uh, some yes. sort of earthly reign? Is that no. <laughs> some, is that the Great Commission? Like we see aspects of kind of all these things um, here, you know, in all these explanations. And so, and in some ways, these are all aspects of uh, Christ's kingdom, right? All all the different they're, interpretations we've mentioned. They're all valid ways of looking at it. Yes. Right. But one right. thing that keeps kind of flitting through my mind, um, so I'll try to grab it before I lose it is the, the idea of the kingdom of God is within you. Mm. When or where will the kingdom come? Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. Right. It's a spiritual kingdom. Right. And it's when we have, because Jesus went and died on a cross and didn't obey Peter. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Peter may have rebuked him, but Jesus said, no, 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 no. Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but things of men. You're a hindrance to me. Yeah. So because Jesus went and did his work, we now are members of Christ's kingdom. The Holy Spirit dwells inside us. We need not fear his second coming. And we try to follow the Great Commission. Right. Okay. Right. Wrapped, it all, wrapped them all up except the destruction of Jerusalem, <laughs> which, which didn't affect me, <laughs> nor you. Right. Terrible. Okay. We have, we have hope again from the words of Jesus, who did, did successfully get to that cross and pay for the sins of the world. Yes. Okay. okay. Very good. Well, let's wrap it up. Do you have a prayer for us this evening? Yes, I do. Okay. Then we pray. Lord of all power and might, author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.